G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks podcast, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my two lovely co-hosts, Ardeet and of course Benelong is joining us today. He is back. Uh, today is Tuesday the 16th of May and this week's topics are inflation's effect on student debt, Tassie is getting a new stadium and they're not too happy about it. And of the Brisbane Quarantine Centre's future. Then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with Benelong. And always, we'll finish off with the Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, how are you two this week? Well, my uh, week's been a little bit weak of, of lamb. Uh, we've had a, a neighbour down the road that we get on well with and they had five lambs that they'd been raising and butchering and uh, gave one of them to us. You know, we fixed them up for the butchering feed. So, uh, yeah, I've been doing a cooking a lot of lamb, getting it ready, putting it into the, the freezer. It was extremely well butchered. Like it basically came in packs with with, label, with uh, labels and everything that was on Sunday. So... Yesterday I was oh, wow. uh, yeah, yeah yesterday was basically a big cook up day so I cooked up some some Rogan Josh I boned the uh, the leg and put that in the the Weber I smoked some chops I roasted some uh, chops and uh, made a lamb broth and tonight I've got rack of lamb for meat night so yeah I've had a bit of a lamb focused few days oh you bloody spoil yourself I know I, I love lamb but mm-hmm. lamb doesn't love me it um it seems to run straight through me uh and i hate that because i love it so much but some days i'll just have to cop it uh and just go you know what i'll have to stay close to a toilet today but otherwise (laughs) (laughs) do you have that um, issue with other red meat no, it's only lamb. Um, and it's not – my wife says, oh, it's probably, you know, lamb can be quite fatty. But even mm. if we have a, a very lean cut, it seems to not agree with me. Um, and other fatty meats like pork and things don't – I'm fine with that. So I don't know well, what it is about lamb, um, but I, I love it. But, yeah, it just doesn't love me. So it doesn't stop me, though. Poor bugger. I know a poem about lambs. Mary had a little lamb, so nice and fat and round. She walked in past the butcher shop, 49 cents a pound. (laughs) I'm glad you went with that one and uh, not not another one that I know about Mary had a little lamb. No, 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 no. This is a clean show. Yes, I I know. Even though though we've got it down as explicit because there's the odd uh, F-bomb gets... Get gets dropped, but yes. Um, no, I, I did wonder where you were going there. I think you probably know the the Mary had a little lamb poem that I'm talking about. Yes, oh, there's a yes, there's a yes. there's a there's a lot of very uh, yeah non PG Mary had a little lambs. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> um, yeah, there's definitely a few of them going around. How about yourself, Ben? Along, what have you been up to this week? Last week, well, I had a little bit of an exciting week actually. So. I finished a couple of courses at Central Queensland University on um, inclusive education and uh, dealing with people with disabilities and um, with anxiety and trauma. And um, I got approved as a registered provider for WorkCover Queensland, so for rehabilitation. 
so had rather a big week. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. I mean, it's been a big week uh, this week for Eurovision, of course, because the uh, the final was on this week. It's it's. Never not strange to me that Australia is in Eurovision. Uh, it is becoming more popular, but it's not huge. But this year, Australia's entry, uh, the band Voyager, did make it to the finals. Unfortunately, they didn't win. Uh, that went to Sweden. Uh, their singer, Loreen, sang a song called Tattoo, and she did win. Uh, however, personally, I did look at some of the finalists in research for this a uh, little brief mention, and I think Finland should have won personally, but I also didn't watch it. I didn't vote, so I can't really uh, speak too much about it, really. Hmm. In the, um, the second semi-final? Yeah, so they, they moved into... It's, it's sort of a bit weird how they how they do the finals and things, but um, we made it pretty far through, uh, almost to the very end. But I, I personally, I listened to the, the Voyager song, I didn't really like it that much. I didn't think it was that good, but because for Eurovision you do have to make an original song for the competition, so it has to be a brand new song uh, just for Eurovision, and it can either be I think it can be in English or your native language, because obviously Eurovision has a lot, lot of, a lot of different languages, a lot of different cultures, um, and a lot of them do choose to sing in English just because they're a bit more. Generally, a little bit more popular, but that's not necessarily always the case. But yes, yeah, Sweden, Sweden won. Loreen sang "Tattoo" in English, I should say. Uh, but of course, ABBA was the most successful uh, act from the most commercially successful act from uh, Eurovision. I think they won almost every year that they were in in it, and a lot of the ABBA songs that uh, a lot of Aussies know and love were written for Eurovision, which is pretty cool. Uh, my my wife's a huge ABBA fan. I didn't uh, know that there was uh, that many uh, songs written by ABBA for Eurovision. Mm. Yep. Now that yeah. I've said that, go and have a look because uh, all of the all of the songs, so all of the entries uh, for Eurovision have to be in original songs for the competition. So you can't you can't go in there with your you know number one hit. You have to have to write a new song. Huh. Uh, oh, Mamma mia, you're right. <laughs> uh, let's move on. There, there's been <laughs> let's let's run quickly. <laughs> That's right. I mean, speaking of winners and losers, there's been a growing calls for student uh, hex slash help loan in uh, indexation to be abolished as inflation sends debts soaring, according to the Greens and the National Union of Students, saying that the federal government is profiting off student loans. Dun, dun, dun. Oh. However, Professor Chapman, who worked with the Hawke government to design the original HEX scheme back in 1989, says that freezing the help slash HEX uh, ind- indexation won't put more money in your pocket in the short term. So what what's going on here? The the Australian Tax Office has released the country's 100 biggest tax debts through a freedom of information request. And the biggest is a whopping $737,000. Wow. 
So just to be clear, this is one person's hex debt is $737,000. The second largest is $495,990. And the third is $387,000. So there's, you know, the the second and third combined are almost what the first is. It's absolutely mental. Uh, But the, the lowest of the top 100... Is more than two hundred and nineteen thousand dollars. Wow! So you fed- you go in you go a little bit into the me- mechanics of that because that's an enormous <laughs> amount based on what I thought they could be lent. Yeah. Well, so caps on it. Sorry, say that again. I thought there were caps on it, um, like one hundred twenty thousand cap. Yeah, so the the federal government uh, does try and claw back what it can from these specific people, uh, but as of 2020, it actually changed the loan limit so that it could cap the amount any single student could borrow. Um, this From this year, the maximum help loan limit uh, was reduced to $113,028 for most students, though for those studying medicine, dentistry, and veterinary science courses, because, of course, these are um, obviously you know quite expensive courses, and specific aviation courses as well, uh, their limit is slightly higher at $162,336. So, you know, the... 737,000, that's, we don't know who this person is. We don't know what degrees they hold, but it's clear that they've probably one of one of these so-called professional students, someone that has multiple degrees uh, in multiple fields and basically just doesn't, <laughs> just doesn't work. They just keep, they just continue to study. Um, Works at I think it's likely... Yeah, I think I think it's likely that you know many of the top 100 are are in that situation, and it's unlikely realistically that the government will probably really get any money out of them. But we will see because now it is capped, so that those people do not have access to to further funding. So what is the hex slash help debt scheme? Basically, the government pays for the course up front and then the graduates then repay the loan once their salary reaches a certain threshold. At the moment, that threshold is $47,014. Once a person with with the help debt is earned... has earnings exceeding that amount, they'll pay 1% of their income to repay the loan as the minimum repayment. The proportion of income taken to repay the loan increases as a graduate's income increases up to 10% of annual income once their salary reaches $141,848. So I do keep using hex slash help help Debt is the new name for the scheme, which was previously known as HEX. Uh, so they, they're essentially the same, the same program. Uh, so now that we understand realistically the sort of money that we're talking about, what's all this fuss about? As of the 1st of June, 3 million Australians with help debts are going to be slugged with 7% indexation 
on those debts. So even though the debt is technically an interest-free loan, it is indexed to keep up with inflation. The Greens submitted a bill designed to pause indexation and increase the repayment threshold in early April, but it was rejected by the Senate committee. So why don't freezing indexation of student debts actually save any money? Uh, Well, I mean, it would. It would save you on the interest paid over the long term, but the repayments would actually remain the same. So if we froze these student help debts today, the amount coming out of their pocket is going to not change at all. Because these government-funded schemes are taken directly from your salary as a percentage of your income. So freezing the interest would literally make no difference to the average repayments that people are paying right now. All it would do is pay the, the loans back quicker, but for most of these debt holders, that's years into the future. The average repayment is between seven and ten years, depending on the term of the lo- depending on the amount of the loan. So freezing this debt actually makes no difference. And of course, we need to remember that the funds used to pay these debts are paid by the taxpayers. All the taxpayers are footing the bill for these students' debts. So indexing with inflation is the only and most fairest way that this scheme can be funded. I'd have to disagree, DK. So, of course, I'm going to disagree. So, um, when Hex first came in, um, the salary limit was around about $55,000, And as the cost of living went up, um, the salary ceiling came down. So, I think it's around about $40,000 now. So, the cost of living is higher, but you can earn less before you actually have to start paying it. Uh, the indexation is actually higher than interest rates on a housing loan at the moment. So, um, and um, what we have to bear in mind is when um, the Free University came in, I think under Hawk, was it, Adi? Look, I, t- I thought it was under Hawk, yes. Yeah, Hawk created the original HEX scheme. And most of the people in Parliament now that have degrees got Free University. And now they're telling us we have to pay for it. Um, it just sort of seems a little bit. Um... But just to just to do a, a be a little bit uh, pedantic on that, it was never it was never free. Nothing is ever free. Uh, it was it was free to the people attending, but that doesn't mean it was free to the economy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was brought in free to all Australian citizens, uh, yep. similar to what's in Sweden and Finland and uh, several other countries which have higher education systems than we do. Uh, yeah. yeah, but what I, what I mean is it's not it's not actually it's not actually free. But the benefits back to the um, economy are astronomical. I mean, now we have a shortage of doctors, we have a shortage of nurses, we have a shortage of all sorts of things. You know, because people can't afford to go to university. Um, yeah. When it was free, uh, Hawke had the idea of the knowledge economy, which is still uh, paramount in a lot of um, a lot of countries. Yeah. And like I said, we have places like Sweden and Finland and a lot of European countries um, offer free education. Korea is another one, I believe. Uh, South Korea, not North Korea. 
nothing is free in North Korea, um, <laughs> not even the people. But anyway, um, I'm sort of I'm on the fence with this one. I think the way that the help debt scheme is set up, I do think it is fair. However, you are right. The threshold for the when the repayments start at forty seven thousand and fourteen dollars is reasonably low. Um, I also think part of this problem is that a lot of young people, a lot of you know, in high school, like when I was in high school, it wasn't what are you gonna, what are you thinking of doing when you leave high school? It was what university are you going to? So. There's this expectation of higher learning, which I think is good, but a lot of people jump in to do courses that they don't really have interest in or, you know, there's a lot of peer pressure around it is what I'm trying to say. Um, I do think we should probably raise that amount that they have to start paying the minimum repayments. But I don't think universities should be quote unquote free because there's a lot of people in our country that spend, you know, that that really contribute to, to the economy that don't need university degrees, that don't want university degrees, but they would still be paying for the people that get university degrees. And I think it's worth mentioning as well. Generally speaking, the higher educated you are, the higher your income is. So there's a direct correlation between, you know, there are very few people that have a master's degree that are earning less than $100,000 a year. I would say probably none of them are. Most people with a master's degree are earning well over $100,000 a year. So why should the average taxpayer, the you know, we're talking the the miners, the plumbers, the builders, the supermarket, uh, you know, trolley boy, the truck driver, why are those people pay, sh- why should those people, I should say, pay for the degree for the doctor to, to be paid $200,000 a year? I think it's a case of there's definitely been a few people screwed by the system the the quote unquote big lie of you know you leave school you need to get your degree and then you'll get a good job there's a lot of people that fell into that trap and I do feel sorry for them because I fell into that somewhat as well however I don't think it's fair to say to every Australian that you should pay for the best and brightest people to get degrees so they can make lots of money and and be contributing to society. They would do that anyway, is what I'm trying to say. And they should pay back through this scheme is a perfect way to do it, but we should probably bump that number up where they have to start making minimum repayments because the cost of living right now, if you live in a capital city and you're earning $47,000, I can tell you, you're struggling. You're absolutely struggling. And this isn't going to help. So maybe we need to bump that up to like $60,000 or something like that. Even then, you know, you're probably not doing super great, but it's more akin to what they should be paid at that point. What about the student financial supplement scheme? So that's part of student debt as well. Uh, You know about that scheme? No, I can't say I do. No. No. Okay, back in um, Keating's day, um, yeah, even though I'm a Labor supporter, but back in Keating's day, um, he came up with this bright idea that if you're an Oz study and you study at university, 
you can give up majority of your Oz study. Um, say your Oz study is um, five hundred dollars a fortnight. You can give up four hundred of that and borrow eight hundred, and then you repay that back. So in effect, they scammed young students at university out of their Oz study and put them into debt. So do you understand where I'm coming at from that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, and this is what this is this is where what really muddies the waters because there's a lot of things like this. And like I said, there's personally speaking, I know people that were more or less pressured into starting degrees that they, you know, only half completed, but they have to pay for them and all sorts of things like that where young naive people are being told by learning institutions by their elders, oh, you should do this, oh, you should do this, and they they don't really know what they should do. And I think it's worth pointing out as well, we're very rarely talking about the people that go on to be doctors, dentists, you know, the, the real, real, uh, the people that are going to be taking on that 160,000 are rarely the sort of people that we're actually talking about. Those people are generally have had a goal in mind and have been working towards that for a few years. We're more talking about the people that don't really know what they want to do and they get, you know, uh, pressured into into a course. Oh, you need to go to university. Oh, you can do this. Oh, wouldn't that be good? And they sort of go, oh, yeah, you know. And then before they know it, they're sitting with, you know, they're starting out. They may not finish their degree because it doesn't really interest them or or maybe it was too difficult or whatnot. And they've got, they're 18, they've got $40,000 in debt and they're working a casual job at, say, like a retail establishment. Like those are the people that I think are really where the Greens and the student uh, the student union are probably more talking about those sort of people that have really been let down by their own naivete and the promises of, of, of and the glitz and glory, I guess, of university. But unfortunately, um, there's not really any way around it. You've got to pay your debt back because you made a, made a bad choice. Yeah, look, I do agree with you. You need to uh, pay it back. That was the contract. Um, you're of an age that you uh, should be able to to read that, and or have a, a guardian that's able to read that. I I tend to think you've got the responsibility for it. It's probably no great surprise to hear me say that I think part of the problem is, or a big part of the problem is that government essentially giving interest free loans is corrupting the the market they in my opinion need to be completely out of it and universities uh probably universities and tapes so all tertiary education needs to stand on its own offerings and be able to justify the cost of a degree based on future returns so if you're going to be uh well let's do let's let's do two sort of classics if you've got something like a a, a dentist uh there's a, a a bracket that's going to be a reasonably expected return which means that uh the student can calculate what they're going to get and it also means that someone like a financial institution like a bank can say therefore you would be a good loan 
But as soon as you distort the market with a government, um, you know, a, a government favour, something that's actually not what a bank would do, that distorts how it's charged. That distorts how it's actually judged. Same way as say someone who wants to be a, a, a plumber, you know, again another one that earns some some good money. Uh, if their degree can say your income is expected to be within this bracket, then you've got something measurable. Whereas if you've got a degree in, um, I, I don't know, you know, if you if you've got a degree for which there's not much demand and it's got a low amount of uh, return on money, why should free money be handed out to do something that's not actually going to be able to re- return? a reasonable income in order to pay that debt. So my yeah. opinion is the government is the one corrupting the um, corrupting the market. But just to give you a little bit of a twist here and probably might surprise you a little bit better along, as a principle, uh, free tertiary education to me has a very strong argument. I can understand a model that you would have that's similar to public schools and private schools in the tertiary uh, t- tertiary field. I'm not quite sure how that would go out. So whilst I feel that government's corrupting it through loans, the actual principle of free education, I think, has a lot of benefit for the economy and the nation. Uh, I think there's um, a point there, like you make a good point, some degrees are crap degrees. I mean, I remember back in the 90s, there was actually a degree in um, surfboard design. So, and I can't really <laughs> This is, I am not kidding, or shit you not. Um, there was a degree in surfboard design. So I think the government needs to sort of um, approve degrees and non-approved degrees. Obviously, surfboard design, not a lot of people are going to make a lot of money out of that. <laughs> okay, I could be wrong. Um, for things like medicine, um, accounting, um, teaching, nursing, things like those, perhaps we could have as approved courses where you get the HEX or you get the free education, um, providing you pass certain requirements to get into university. Hmm. So I think there needs to be approved courses and non-approved courses. Um, One of the fascinating ones I found was there's actually a degree in economic geography. Um, (laughs) What's that? It's what Scott Morrison's got. <laughs> but but what, oh, what, what, what is it? Oh, it's clearly a waste of time. Um, yeah, um, economic geography is actually is a field in science. Um, whether economics is actually a science or not, but there's a Nobel Prize for Ooh, it. Oh, you're going to upset a lot of people by saying that. Huh. Um, yeah, but it's one of the Nobel Prizes. Um, interestingly, psychologists have won the... Nobel Prize for Economics. Um, so, um, it, that's not here nor there. Um, yeah, economic geography doesn't seem to really um, prepare people for a career. It's the only person I know who's got a degree in economic geography has been sacked from every job he's had. <laughs> so, well, but he did become Prime Minister. <laughs> and Minister for everything else. <laughs> Yeah. Look, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, let's not go into that right now. But I think I think you're right. There, there are definitely, you know, it, it's 
we're, we're at odd. We're the the problem here is that we've got learning institutions that get paid by getting bums and seats to sign up for courses. Mm. So their incentive is to make uh, just frivolous courses that potentially, uh, you know, will get people in the door. Surfboard design sounds genuinely interesting, and I'm sure it's not a complete and total waste. But the reality is exactly like what you've said. How many jobs are there at the end of the pipeline? Uh, There are. There are. That 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 was actually completely unintended. Unintended. Uh, There are. I know there are degrees Uh, where (laughs) (laughs) there are degrees where the only job uh, at the end of the degree is teaching the degree. So. You know, there are, you know, there are degrees that are basically, for all intents and purposes, basically a waste of time. A lot of them seem very interesting at face value and wildly entertaining, but that's not necessarily the the carrot and stick that we need to be dangling in front of young, impressionable 17 and 18-year-olds. We need to... Probably, I think the the older generations have a responsibility to our youth to educate them, I think, about this so that they don't get screwed over. And look, at the end of the day, there's always going to be people that get screwed over with their degree for, for whatever reason, you know. And it could be complete innocent things like there was a death in the family and they had to move away and they could no longer complete their course. It could be stuff like that and they're going to end up footing the bill uh, for a degree that's not not useful to them or, or whatever. Um, this is a, an incredibly complicated issue, and I think I think this is something we're going to hear a lot of probably every year, especially with inflation being so high at the moment. Um, I don't think I think really the only the actual only solution to this problem is that they increase that minimum repayment threshold. Um, yeah, I'd agree with that one. So, yeah, look, I'd probably agree with that. I'd also point out that, once again, inf- inflation is another government-caused problem that's having an issue here. So we've got a, a double header on that. But, yeah, I'd agree with you on the payment uh, threshold increase. Yeah, yeah. Now, listen, we need to move on because... Yeah. Jackie Lambie has joined thousands of Australians uh, at a rally against the new $715 million AFL stadium that's planned to be built in uh, Hobart, right near the port, right down on the water. It's actually a really good location, but they've estimated it was up to 7,000 Tasmanians have voiced their opposition. Uh, they're critical to the state's entry. Th- sorry, the stadium is critical to the state's entry to the AFL. Uh, I thought more than critical. I thought it was conditional. It is conditional. Uh, and this is only a day after the project was brought by the Rockcliffe government, and it's brought it to its knees, actually. Uh, it is Australia's only liberal government, liberal state government, sorry, uh, and it's been thrust into minority status on Friday after two ministers have quit, citing concerns over state debt and government transparency around uh, 
the planned build on the edge of the Hobart CBD. These issues were echoed at a rally outside the state parliament on Saturday as, as I said, 7,000 people rallied with signs saying, Team Yes, Stadium No, tell the AFL where to go. (laughs) And we can't eat stadiums or submarines. (laughs) I assume they're not talking about sandwiches. Uh, Also, you can stick your stadium up your bum. Uh, (laughs) Which which I love. (laughs) Senator Jackie Lambie soon joined in telling the Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe, Tasmanians have had a gutful over your stadium and you can stick it up your bum. (laughs) Uh, I loved, I did love that little bit. It just shows what a good politician she is, that she saw the reaction of the, the crowd and thought, okay, I'm going to insert that. I'll take that catchphrase. And it got the headline. Run with it. I mean, it's not It's not been a very uh, politically correct, let's say, but clearly in the heat of the moment, it definitely suited. And to be fair, I do like that as well. It was, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's mildly insulting. It's something like a five-year-old would say, and I like that. Uh, (laughs) Federal Independent MP Andrew Wilkie addressed the the rally, having earlier told the parliament that the 23,000-seat arena would look at best like a monument to stupidity and at the worst like a giant bedpan. (laughs) These people are not happy, I should say. No. Tasmania's Tasmania's Labor opposition, meanwhile, took issue with the AFL, making the stadium a condition that Tasmania gets a team license to join the league. And I quote, I'm extremely disappointed, but I'm getting on with the job, the Premier said, told reporters on Friday. He's not happy either. People might not always agree with what we're doing, but we are doing it for the right reasons, he said. He's also said that his government and the AFL had to deal with the commercial inconfidence aspects of the deal, and once he once they had, he'd be more open and transparent around the arrangement. He <laughs> <Bullshit>. also <laughs> yeah. That's kicking the can down the road until everyone forgets. He also insisted health and housing remained his priorities. And I quote. I've been very open about the deal and will be more open and transparent about the deal, he said. Oh, God. <laughs> We're spending $375 million. I'm spending it once. I spend that every 51 days in health. $11 billion every four years on health. Surprisingly. That's got nothing to do with it, though, has it? I, I mean, they're, they're two totally different things. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's um, a false equivalency. Um, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, the thing is, you know, we got Jackie is sitting there, and it's quite rightly so, saying we want fifteen hundred new houses in um, Tasmania to deal with the housing problem, um, and we're going to spend hundreds of million dollars on a stadium instead. How many houses will that build? How many jobs will that create? Okay. Um, the simple fact is, <laughs> a Tasmanian team, I mean, for God's sake, the Tasman- Tasmania is not the Gold Coast or Sydney or Melbourne or 
Yeah. As soon as those players make a name for themselves in the Tasmanian team, the following year they'll be gone up to the Gold Coast. So um, it's not going to build the AFL down in Tasmania. I mean, all it's going to be is a kick, you know, a kickoff point to go into bigger teams for more money. Tasmania just doesn't have the money to pay for the players what they can get elsewhere. So all it's going to do is give the tail a kickstart and I go elsewhere. It's not going to bring money into the state. Um, it's a white elephant as far as I'm concerned. Okay, I'm done now. Well, I, I mean, you the, the, the theme that's running through there in your comment is that government has an involvement in it in the, the first place. I know there's the usual run-of-the-mill story that's trotted out about how it's going to bring money back into the economy and blah, 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 and there's always... There's always a reason for spending uh, taxpayer money on uh, yet another large corporation's dreams. But if a Tasmanian team is viable, then it should be viable by itself. I mean, you have you have a protest like that. I mean, 7,000 people down in Tasmania. I mean, that, that's basically a 14,000 head count down there protesting uh, against <laughs> <Off> the island. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I guess, yeah, that's a, that's a lot of a lot of people actually coming out. So that represents a, a very strong feeling yeah. against it. It's going to be interesting to me to see whether they pull this off because normally these things can be pushed through. You get the blather from the politicians. You get the uh, PR spin from the, the sports organisation. But that sounds like a lot of people who are not prepared to support it. And personally, I'm not sure why you can't just say we can have a team and if it's successful based on bloody playing at an oval with people sitting in their cars watching it, if that's not enough to make it take off and start to build up by itself, you'd argue whether or not uh, Tassie actually needs a team in the AFL. So... There only is I... Melbourne anyway. I mean, God. Look, Well, is basically a suburb of Melbourne anyway. They got the same oh, area. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, um, every organisation runs Tasmania out. Well, not every organisation, but just about every organisation. The banks and uh, finance companies, insurance companies, all run the Tasmanian operations out of Melbourne. So. Mm. Yeah, I can't see, like, I can understand putting um, money into Brisbane for the Olympic Games, but, you know, because it is going to bring a lot of money back into Australia overall. But I can't yeah, see... Maybe. Um, we oh, no, it, it will. Yeah. I, I don't know that it will completely repay it, but remember, sort of as we briefly spoke about it last week, a lot of the infrastructure that they're going to be building is the sort of infrastructure that kind of needs to be built because Brisbane is expanding so much anyway. So it's not good, it's not really going to waste, but remember that the Olympics, these big international sporting events, do bring in a huge amount of people and it does blow up the, the local economy. Yeah, but it's arguable whether it uh, blows it up to the uh, level of expenditure. My my understanding, happy to be corrected here, but my understanding was the Sydney Olympics were one of the few uh, modern Olympics 
to actually uh, make a profit. Most of the Olympics that are held uh, end up in the red. Yeah, but Australia has a much stronger economic situation than what a lot of other countries do. We're one of the, we're one of the only 24 core countries that um, control and benefit most from um, the world economy. Um, and we have one of the strongest economic models in the world, or we did have up until 2013, um, because of what Keating and Swan brought in. Uh, um, sorry, sorry, what Keating brought in um, with the economic model that he brought in when he's treasurer, Keating and Hawke, sorry. Um, that economic model lasted us right up till the LNP sort of um, untangled it quite a bit. Um, that's building up again now. That economic model is coming back in again now with the last budget, I believe. Um, so I think the Brisbane Olympics will make um, a profit, but I can't see the Tasmanian Stadium making a profit. I really no, can't. no, so really surprisingly, uh, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, actually defended the stadium. Uh, and I think it's because it was back in 2012, he was the infrastructure minister under Julia Gillard and he helped the lay some of the groundwork, pun intended, uh, for this plan. And he actually said that the quote unquote, the site has been left derelict for too long. Now I've been exactly to where this is uh, because when I was in the Navy, we spent a couple of days in Hobart. Uh, I don't really know why, actually, now that I think about it, but we were in, we were in port there. For, for, why the hell would you? Yeah, I, was, I don't. We, I was, well, we were, doing, we were doing some other stuff uh, around Tasmania, uh, but I don't, now that I think about it, I don't actually know specifically why we were in Hobart. We we're already there for two days, so it wasn't a long time. But we were tied up at the wharf there because it is an industrial an industrial wharf area. Um, and there's like a huge car park and things like that. And so I look at it and go, there's no quote unquote wasted space there per se. Mm. So if they did put a stadium there or at least where it's been... Uh, illustrated to be, uh, they're going to have to relocate the port or uh, I, I don't really know. I, like, I, Admittedly, I haven't actually looked at the, the complete plan, so I'm not 100% sure, but just feel like there's not probably quite enough space for a really big stadium there without ruining, you know, what else is going on there. But that that's all aside because this very much... Mm is going to be a white elephant. Uh, it's going to cost the the, the ratepayers and the taxpayers of Tasmania a lot of money on, ongoing. Um, yep. The Premier said that it was once off. That's not true. You know, these large infrastructure projects cost money to run. They cost money to maintain. They cost money uh, constantly. And, of course... Hobart only has a population, I think, of about 250,000 people. It's not a very big capital city. And the whole population of Tasmania is uh, only 545,000. So, again, it's not 
a huge amount of people. Admittedly, it's not a huge stadium. It's only 23,000 people. But it does feel like a white elephant, a bit of a, a bit of a vanity project yep. that's just not needed, you know, um, especially because Tasmania does have a lot of other issues that are unresolved and just kicked down the road and, you know, mm. they could definitely use that money in better places. And I can see, it, look, if I was Tasmanian and I lived in Hobart, you know, there was probably a good chance that I might have joined that rally on Saturday just because this is just such a it's it's just so unneeded. And and frankly, yep. the a- AFL should be a little bit ashamed that they're dictating uh, that they have to have a stadium for a team where it could be a bit more casual. Maybe make their home ground one of the grounds in in. Uh, Hobart, There's a, they've got a few big ovals there. Uh, make it there, and maybe make it like in Melbourne as well, and one, just see how 100%. it goes. That's uh, look. In fact, that, that's exactly what I was was meaning. I, I wasn't being um, wasn't being blithe when I said about the, you know, the the oval with every with people sitting in their cars. Yeah, use what is actually there in place and see how it goes. And if it takes off and it starts bringing in some money, then great, go for it. But if it doesn't take off, if it's not getting the support, then you've essentially saved the, um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on some, essentially a, a boondoggle. I mean, at, at the end of the day, to play a good game of AFL, you need a decent oval. And if you can't get one of the existing ovals or even you know do up a, a, a block of, of land with some some reasonable turf so that it's safe for the players to just at least have a go on there and throw some TV cameras around there I, I, I refuse to believe you can't test it small yeah I think, I think the NRL started off um, with Brisbane with the Broncos actually started playing out at Red Hill before they moved into Suncorp Stadium. And Townsville also started off playing at a local stadium before they built the main stadium up there. So Red, Red Hill's a local stadium up there, is it? Yeah. Uh, Red Hill, sorry. Yeah. So yeah. a good example Which is... located at Red Hill, not at Suncorp. A, a really good example of this is in the NRL this year, uh, the Dolphins... Uh, are a brand new team. They're from Redcliffe originally, and they have their home ground in Redcliffe. It's called KO Stadium. It's where the where the where their original uh, like team played and everything like that. It only has the capacity, I think, of like nine nine and a half thousand seats or something like that. It is not a particularly big stadium. Um, it's more like a very fancy leagues club, basically. Right. Um, but their home ground is there. It's also at Suncorp Stadium. So there, you know, Suncorp is the home of the Broncos, but it's also the home of the Dolphins. The Dolphins play all their big matches at Suncorp Stadium because they don't need to build another stadium in Redcliffe, which is only, you know, uh, uh, it's sort of uh, North Brisbane. Like it's not very far from the city at all. You don't need to continue to build huge infrastructure. And, and honestly, 
if they did build a new st- a massive stadium in Redcliffe with the capacity for, you know, a similar one to what they're proposing in Tasmania, it would get used because there's enough of the population around there to sustain it. Hmm. But Tassie's a different situation. And it, it is disappointing. I look at it and say, you know, and, and go, I'm a bit disappointed with the AFL that they've sort of forced – uh, the the Tasmanian government's hand in this. They want to have a team. They want to do all of that, but now they're getting settled with this white elephant, and I think it's not it's not really fair. Um, no, I, I I tend to agree with you on that. I think it's um, people in high places uh, twisting arms, and I think you know we've if if the three the three of us can come up with a couple of cheaper alternatives. I refuse to believe that it can't be uh, developed further without needing to spend all that money, and yeah, by people at a higher higher level. I mean, you know, no, no sort of in, insult to us, but you know, we're not we're not uh, you know hundred thousand dollar a year consultants on this type of thing, and we already came up with a couple of uh, different ways to try it that are reasonable. Exactly. Exactly. And that amount of money, you yep. know, three quarters of a billion dollars, that, that could build a new hospital. Mm. Like, oh. you know, we're just, we're talking about, uh, I'm not saying that they don't need a stadium and that's not a good place to put it. It's, it's, it, it, it's not a bad location. Yep. It's just, they don't need it now. In 10 years time, it might be a different story, but now's not the time to do this. It's waste, and I yeah. And you can always and, build it. That's that's the thing. It's it's yeah. not as if this is the only opportunity you have to build a stadium. You can you can build yeah. You you, you can put up uh, reasonable seating around an oval, and then get to the point where you say, "Listen, we're going to have to move, or we're going to have to build build it up bigger because the demand is demonstrated just to be so." Uh, so regular that we can see an income stream in the future. Very similar to what we were talking about with the student debt improving that that uh, degree is going to give you an income stream. Play the Tasmanian team and prove that it's going to get an, get an income stream and then build on that. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. because they've, they've had big events in Tasmania in the past, big sporting yep. events, and they haven't drawn the crowds to really sustain that sort of thing long term. Now, I'm not saying this is a bit of a chicken and egg situation, though, where, mm. you know, if it's a once-off, you may get more people or maybe you won't because, you know, da-da-da-da-da. But if it's more a regular thing, then people might more regularly go. And I get that. But I just think, yeah, this is the wrong move at the wrong time. Especially when there's so many homeless people around. Perhaps they could build a quarantine centre that they could put the homeless people into. You're exactly right. So speaking of the wrong move at the wrong time, the Brisbane Lord Mayor has committed a million dollars to relocating people living in the city's parks to the empty $400 million COVID quarantine centre in, I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce the suburb. Is it Pinkenbar? Pinkenbar. Yeah, Pinkenbar. But he's not spoken to the federal government who actually own the facility. Uh, <laughs> the 500-bed facility currently just sits empty. 
So the Queensland Environmental Minister, Megan Scanlon, said that she understands the meetings are, are going ahead next week, but said that the state doesn't own the facility and it's federally owned, so it's not something the state has any control over. Um, but she does underline the importance of all services being involved in, in any solution, which we'll come back to in a minute. Um, and I quote, Housing needs are often very complex. It's not just a roof over your head. It's all the other supports. We'll work with all levels of government to try and find a solutions to make sure that we can help vulnerable Queenslanders. So that sounds really, really good. But our very own Ben Along has written a fantastic article on this, and he's highlighted some really serious issues with the plan. Uh the individual units as they exist today do not have kitchens or laundry facilities. They have a centralized kitchen and a centralized laundry, as well as Pink and Bar is remote. It's out near the Brisbane docks near the airport, and there's extremely limited public transport or other services, such as libraries, retail outlets, fast food establishments, grocery stores, and entertainment venues. However, Brisbane City Councillor Shriner said that the facility would provide up to 500 beds for people with low needs who have fallen on hard times. And I quote, what I mean by this is that there are some people who at the moment literally have jobs, but they're living in their cars and tents. They don't need higher levels of support services. They simply need a roof over their head and Pink and Bar would be the appropriate location for that, end quote. Mm. They've said that the million dollars would go towards laundry services at the facility as well as stretched to accommodate transport and library services. And I quote, a combination of public transport services like the bus services and our council cabs program as well. And we'll make sure that the mobile library that we have attends the facility on a regular basis, end quote. So this sounds to me, we have a very expensive purpose-built facility. So this COVID quarantine center was built for, uh, and Benelon, correct me if I'm wrong, but this was built for returning passengers overseas when they arrived in Brisbane, they would be taken to this facility to do their f mandatory 14 days quarantine. Is that right? Yep. So we have a very specific, mind you, very expensive, 400 million, uh, purpose-built facility, 500-bed facility that does look qu like quite reasonably nice. Um, but, of course, it's not set up for this for what the Lord Mayor is proposing. It sounds to me like the Lord Mayor has looked at this facility sitting empty and gone, oh, let's just take our problem from the CBD and we'll shove it out there. And then it's out of everyone's, uh, out of everyone's faces, out of their minds, and I no longer care. That's what it sounds like to me because the Queensland Government Environmental Minister, as she said, they have no control over this. The Brisbane City Council doesn't own the facility. The Queensland State Government doesn't own the facility. And none of them have spoken to the federal government who does own the facility. So this just sounds like a big mess. And Ben Along, I'm going to pass it over to you because you're going to do this 
way more justice than I will. That is a brief introduction. Please take it away. Okay, so the laundry facilities are there, are centralised laundry facilities. Um, it's an industrial laundry, an industrial kitchen, uh, which requires trained experts to use. They cook bulk meals, they do bulk laundry, which is fine when you're only there for two weeks. You put your laundry in a bag, you send it off, it gets washed in with everybody else's laundry, and it comes back to you the same day. Um, okay, that's fine. Um, they were charging... They intended to charge the people um, for their stay in the quarantine centre. So there was um, that risk that if you went overseas and you come back, you had to pay for your stay in the facility. Um, the same with the kitchen services. There were bulk meals cooked and they were delivered to the rooms. You didn't leave the room um, because you were in quarantine. Okay. Simple as this, um, there are no kitchen facilities, no laundry facilities in any of the 500 units there. So each person had to stay there independently. Um, you weren't allowed out of the room. Um, you weren't allowed to go to the shops, you, because there are no shops anyway. Um, you weren't allowed to go to the laundromat because there's no laundromat there. You weren't allowed to go to entertainment centres. You stayed there for the two weeks. Okay. Um, that was set up for a specific clientele. Um, I've seen a lot of stuff on Twitter and on Facebook and even on Reddit. Um, you know, oh, if they've got the facilities there, why can't they all just go in and share the facilities? 500 homeless people, 30% of who have mental illness or some sort of trauma from living on the streets, sharing an industrial laundry site is really not feasible. Okay, for starters, we would have Fair Work Commission, the Fair Work Ombudsman, the unions, um, Work Safe Queensland. Um, <laughs> yeah. That would all be all over it. You know, unqualified people using the machinery, there would be violence on a scale that you would not believe. You know, 500 people sharing a laundry, 500 people sharing a kitchen. Um, I've heard other suggestions. Um, why don't we just put 500 washing machines into the room? You've got to have fittings for the washing machine, for the wastewater to go away. Um, 500 washing machines is not cheap. Uh, why can't we put 500 microwaves in there so they cook their meals? So you can't cook your own meals. You have to buy frozen food to cook in the microwave. Oh, guess what? There's no supermarkets at Pinker Bar. So, yeah, this whole thing has to be thought through a lot better. Okay. Um, the public transport is another matter. Um, having seen Brisbane City Council in action since Adrian Sheena took over, um, Graham Quill, yeah, he might have been able to do it. Adrian Schroeder, he can't do it. He doesn't have the leadership or the capacity. So that's just a few of the points that comes down to it. You cannot use an industrial facility as a shared facility for 500 people. It's just technically impossible, or logistically impossible. Okay. RD, your turn. Yeah, look, I, uh, I did appreciate your article. 
it was uh, a, a view that I thought was was reasonable. Uh, the key phrase that stuck out to me was was fit for purpose. Um, I thought that was a, that was a reasonable take on it. I'm always a big fan of uh, testing something small, seeing how it uh, works out, and e- expanding that model. I look. I, I agree with you on your criticisms of the uh, central laundry and the central kitchen. Uh, I suppose where I disagree is that it has to be the same model that every apartment has to have a kitchen, every apartment has to have a a, a laundry. Um, and that we can't pr- provide, you know, food and an educational, ser- not educational, but food and um, recreational services to that area that you know, can get b- brought in. The idea of a central kitchen. I mean, I'm, I'm, I tell you, I'm, I'm vacillating because I'm having a little bit of a struggle between being uh, what I think sounds heartless and. Uh, wanting to think, let's sort of try some. Let's try something different. Five five hundred beds is not going to solve the homeless problem in uh, in Brisbane. But I'm just wondering if there's a halfway point where you can say, listen, if you're interested in coming here, there's going to be uh, a, a central a central dining area, central kitchen area. Uh, you can take take back a meal. We will provide microwaves in your in in your store, but the food is initially coming from the the kitchen. Um, the laundry facilities we're going to expand, but in the initial uh, run of housing people, we're basically going to be doing it via bags, and we're going to be employing people who are skilled in industrial kitchens and industrial laundries. My difficulty with this is that. I, I feel like it's a, a a good idea to use a facility that is set up and has a whole lot of money, and I tend to push back against the it's not being done the traditional way, so therefore it's not going to work. I think maybe we try uh, maybe we try a another way. We try another way of providing the food. We try another way of providing the laundry services. Uh, I also noticed in your article you had talked about using defence force for policing. Um, I, I'm really half half on on that, given that there's different there's there's different training. However, that struck me as another ready solution to essentially control the area. Look for 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 me, the bottom line is I think that. Federal, state, and local government should be doing everything possible to quickly try it as a solution, offer it to a number of the people who are homeless, particularly the number of people who are homeless who actually have a job. They have, uh, you know, they're active in society, but unfortunately, during due, uh, unfortunately, due to circumstances sometimes beyond their control or you know sometimes related to their thing they actually have lost their their home but they're otherwise that's the only thing that they they need 
I think rather than be something that is talked about and extended about and never happened, get in there and try it and learn on the job is is really where I sit with it. Yeah, that's, sort of falls. that's fair enough. Like um, they did similar after Cyclone Tracy in Darwin um, yeah. where you had um, tens of thousands of people that were suddenly homeless. It's 90% of the houses were demolished in Cyclone Tracy, population of 50,000. He had 40,000 people that were suddenly homeless. They built Tracy Village in about a week. Um, and I'm guessing that every single um, one there didn't have full facilities, or, or am I incorrect on that? Um, no, they didn't have full facilities, but they're also um, people that hadn't been long-term unemployed, people that hadn't been long-term on the streets. Um, your point about um, taking people that have jobs and don't have houses, it has some merit, but um, then again, you cause division. So the long-term homeless are probably expecting that those should be the ones that have moved in first. So everybody is going, yeah, there's always going to be um, the social identity there. Um, are we less worthy than people that have jobs? So it's a, it's a very difficult situation to decide who gets it. Um, places and who doesn't. Um, I know from my own experience working with the street people with Senator Bartlett, um, about 30% of the long-term street people have mental illnesses. And you put them into those sort of places where you say, we're going to regulate what you can eat, we're going to regulate when you get your clothes washed. Uh, and, you know, there's really nothing for you to do here. Um Musgrave Park, for example, um, which is in the inner suburbs of Brisbane, uh, there are a lot of laundromats around, there are a lot of um, takeaway food places around, um, there are hotels there. Um, I know you'd probably say people who are homeless shouldn't be going to hotels. fact of the matter is they do. Um, Pink and Bar has nothing. <laughs> Well, I'd say that's nothing. It has very little out there. That's why they put the quarantine centre there because it was isolated. Um, exactly. Like, I think, <sighs> Ardi, what you said, I think it definitely has some validity. the The facility itself uh, was purpose built for the international travel traveller quarantine. Um, it's it's actually kind of surprising to me that they built such a facility, such a permanent facility that costs so much money for such a short, like a temporary problem. Hmm. But anyway, oh. I think it, it, what I can see is we've got a facility here that the federal government owns that probably doesn't really have a plan for, let's be honest. Uh, and we have a problem, a homelessness problem that we can quite easily retrofit this facility to help with. It's not, it's not in the best location, but what they could do is I'm, I'm sort of on board a bit uh, deep with what you said. There's no reason that we couldn't have, um, uh, central meals be made 
at the central kitchen uh, by a volunteer staff, or, or maybe they're maybe they're employed. Uh, and because we have a lot of these people in the same area, we can also use it as an opportunity to provide them with other services. Like you were saying, Benelong, a lot of homeless people have severe mental health issues. They've, they suffer from addiction. They suffer from a number of problems. And as a result, they rely really heavily on existing social services like hospital, uh, other emergency services and things like that. If we do have an opportunity to put a lot of these people in a central place where we can easily get access to them and start preventions for things like uh, uh, physical ailments instead of them going because a lot of these people don't have access to GPs and things like that because of the nature of, of of them living rough so if we can get the roof over their heads then maybe we can have doctors on staff that are there to to act as GPs so that we can and I, I can I can look at this and say I feel like there's an opportunity here to actually have a really good really big program out of it unfortunately the location is probably the biggest sticking point it's not in a great location for people that are unfamiliar uh pink and bar is like an industrial area it's near brisbane's um uh like uh port facilities they're industrial port facilities uh not just cargo ships but also like liquefied natural gas and things like that um as well as brisbane airport is right there as well so just being the proximity of the airport isn't going to be suitable for all people because of course it is going to be noisy it's going to be um uh, you're going to be disruptive and things like that um so i don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater but mm. based on what you know the, the problems that benelong highlighted in his article i think there's a long way before we actually see this facility being used for this program I also have a big problem with you suggesting the ADF get involved. I don't think that's suitable. I don't think it's a good idea. The Australian Defence Force isn't trained to, and I don't want this to be rude, but they're not trained to babysit old folks in old folks facilities. They're not trained to babysit homeless people. They're not trained to retrofit quarantine centres. They're, they're also in not trained to be police. Yeah, you know, they're, exactly. they're two very different styles of training. They're not security guards, and I, I personally have a big problem with them being used for that role during the COVID quarantine situation. <laughs> I understand it was an unprecedented situation and everything like that, but the average soldier, sailor, and airman does not have training in security in that way. They don't have crowd control training. They have... Uh, war fighting training basically those things aren't very compatible generally speaking and we've seen no. throughout the world throughout history that those don't work particularly well together so <laughs> i don't think that's a good idea but i do like benelong that you were looking for a solution to the problem that you have seen and if i would suggest that you should become a consultant for this program because you've in that article, you thought up things that I had never even considered. Um, yep. But I 
do think that this has potentially got a large opportunity here for some really good stuff to come out of a facility that otherwise is basically going to go to waste um, or be sold off and used as like student dormitories or something like that. I think we could keep this as a public a, a public piece of infrastructure that could do some good. It's not going to solve the problem. It's not a silver bullet, but it can be part of the solution. Yeah, the other two problems that we have is the land actually belongs to the Department of Defence. Okay, so and the Department of Defence doesn't want to give it up. They want to put Defence First personnel in there. Um, the second problem we have is you mentioned about we need um, support staff there, we need um, this, we need that. To get all those staff, the, you know, to use the industrial laundry facilities, to use the... Um, to use the um, kitchen, um, you need trained staff there. There's things like insurance, there's things like union regulations, there's things like housing regulations. Um, so there's all these types of things. That doesn't happen overnight. You have to recruit people to use it. You have to make sure that they satisfy the insurance companies, they satisfy the Fair Work Commission, they satisfy the yep. unions. Um, so it can't happen overnight. Defence Force, fair enough. Um, I'll stand corrected on that one. But it did work after Cyclone Tracy, it did work after the floods, it did work after the bushfires um, as a... As a um, temporary measure, but yep. it's going to take some time to get it done. It can't just happen overnight. Where, where is where is this facility? Is it part of the uh, the the Navy land? Is it? I'm not sure which um, department of the Defence Force it belongs to, but I know it does belong to Defence, and they don't want to give it up. They want to put um, Defence. Force personnel in there, so that's the problem Albanese has. You know, the defence force doesn't want to give it up, um, and you also have the problem with um, in the Brisbane itself with the homeless um, organisation, homelessness organisations um, are against the idea. Um, Micah actually come out and said uh, they will take funding from us to put into Pink and Bar. Micah is the biggest homelessness organisation in Brisbane. They'll take funding from us to put into this. And they seem more worried about their own funding rather than um, <laughs> the actual solution to the problem. Uh, are, you, are, you overly, are you overly surprised at that? Not, not to sound too cynical, but uh, does that surprise you completely? Um, no, it doesn't. Um, I've worked with the homeless before and a lot of the organisations are more concerned about themselves. About 60% of the money that goes into homeless organisations pays for administration. 40% goes into actual services. So, um, yeah, I'm not overly surprised, but you can sort of see the problem Albanese, Palaszczuk and even um, Schriner have. Uh, Schriner's the Lord Mayor. Um, you can sort of see the problem that they have. They're not just um, trying to score political points against each other but they've also got the Defence Department and the homelessness organisations fighting against them. So it's not entirely the politicians' fault. You know, uh, my point of view is <laughs> three weeks it could be probably established to 
be fit for purpose. But in the meantime, you've got all these other organisations, events, the homelessness services, um, the Lord Mayor, um, all trying to score political points and all trying to get money. So, you know. Yes, that was money. that was something that went went through from from what I was reading in in your your article and from uh, what I was reading in things like the the ABC. There seems to be way too much politics involved in this. Yeah, the media and is not doing yeah. uh, either. No. No. So, anyway, that's just my viewpoint. So, well, well I, I tell you what, it was a it, it was a good viewpoint that you had. No, I, I, I yeah. Look, this wasn't the um, this wasn't uh, something that I had ever even really considered or, or really known about. So I'm glad for you bringing it up. But speaking of things uh, in recent history. What what happened this week in Australian history? Oh, I don't know. Um, ha! <laughs> <laughs> so what do we start from? So the 12th, so last Friday, because we did up to the 13th. That's right, yeah. The 11th. So on May 12th, Bush Ranger John Gilbert was shot dead near Binalong in New South Wales. And it's been a long time since he was shot. <laughs> uh, in two th- that was in eighteen sixty five. In two thousand and three, on May twelfth, Governor General Peter Hollingworth, who was in the news again now, um, stands down following accusations that he attempted to cover up several instances of sexual abuse in the early nineteen nineties as the Archbishop of Brisbane. And he's still on the news. Hmm. On May 13th in 1787, the first fleet left Portsmouth, England, for New South Wales with the intention of establishing the first European settlement in Australia. Um, according to the Chinese, they had settlements here back in the 1200s. But we won't go into that. No, so. but we might, we might another time because it's an interesting topic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I heard that tone, Ben, along. <laughs> um, and that was in 1787. In 1965, Bob Askin was sworn in as Premier of New South Wales, leading for the first time a coalition of the Liberal Party of the, and the Country Party. So it was the first time the Liberal Party and the Country Party, who later became the National Party, for the coalition in any government anywhere in Australia. So that's all worked out pretty well. Hmm. So May 14th, 1798, HMS Nautilus arrives in Sydney carrying missionaries from the London Missionary Society. And the missionaries have done a great job in Australia. And <laughs> about that. Um, in 1859, the Melbourne Football Club, Australia's oldest football club, was founded. Um, and they never dreamed when they were first founded that there would one day be a stadium in Tasmania. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> May 14th is also Kate Blanchard's birthday, born in 1969 and eight, 1984. The Australian $1 coin was first introduced. 
84. Wow. If you had asked me to guess that, I wouldn't have, don't know that I'd have gone 84. I probably would have yeah. gone uh, mid 90s, but not that early. I, yeah, I wouldn't have gone. Yeah. I actually would have thought I would be older than that, but yeah. I can remember it. I was a young man at the time. Uh, anyway, that's showing me age. <laughs> oh, I can remember. I can remember using one cent coins. You know, I can remember buying like a, a few one cent coins and buying some bloody firecrackers in the days before all this insanity about kids blowing off their fingers got out of control. Well, to be fair, a lot of kids did get their fingers blown off. It's or, or they died. Um, but yeah, I think but aside from the aside from the deaths and the maiming, it was a great. <laughs> yeah. It was a it was a good yeah, night. What have the Romans ever done for us? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Two thousand and four, Mary Donaldson got married. Who did she marry? Ma- so, uh, Mary Donaldson. Oh, uh, there's Princess Mary. I assume two thousand four. Oh. Uh, Prince Frederick of Denmark. Yes. Well done. Okay, wow. you win a free bottle of Forex. Oh, fantastic. You, I'll send it to you, pay on delivery. So, oh, and she was from Hobart. I wonder what she thinks about the new stadium. I'll ring her up and ask her. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe not. I'll probably have an ASIO file on me then. Um, oh, I thought you were going to say that Princess Mary's got an AVO out against you. <laughs> wow. He doesn't now, she will have shortly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, on May 15th, 1989, Bond University, the first private university in Australia, opened and they did not give free education. 1989. So, first, like completely private, no first state funding. Yep. Yeah. So, opened by Alan Bond, who later went to jail. Ah, I mean, Bond University still has the the air of sort of prestige about it. Um, I know a few people that went there. Um, They're a bit snobbish. I don't think it probably quite deserves the reputation it has, but anyway. Uh, Well, who was one of the famous people that is a lecturer at Bond University and also leader of the United Australia Party? Oh no! Oh, he's a he's a associate professor at Bond University. No way! Wow. We're, we're of course talking about um, our Clive boyfriend Palmer. Clive Palmer. Um, so I did not know that he's an associate oh. professor at Clive Palmer. Is it? Yes. Wow. Yeah, and Bond University has actually asked him to stop putting that on his resume. <laughs> <laughs> to stop telling people. You know, they did that as a courtesy because he's a successful businessman before he became a politician. So, anyway. Uh, um, reboot you so. That was in 1999. May 16th, 19... Very explosive day, May 16th. Oh, thank you, DK. <laughs> in, um, this day, in 1956, the first post-war British nuclear test began with Operation Mosaic at the Montebello Islands in Western Australia. Oh. They did a test on some islands. Yeah, there were actually quite a number of 
nuclear tests uh, by the British in Australia because um, Britain famously is very, very small <laughs> and <laughs> not, not a great place to test nuclear weapons. So... You... I disagree. I think it'd be a great place. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, um, Sorry, Charlie. It, the nuclear, the British nuclear uh, weapons development program is wildly interesting, and we do not have time at all to go into this. But of course, uh, they needed somewhere to do it, and for some reason, Australia said, "Yeah, sure," and. Um, yeah, we did. We we got some usable uh, information out of it as well. So yeah, but what we didn't get was nuclear weapons, which is no. again a topic for another time because we're yeah. wildly ripped off there. Okay, yeah. the last one for today, nineteen eighty three, May sixteenth. New South Wales Premier Neville Rand stepped aside in response to allegations raised by APC TV program Four Corners that he attempted to influence the New South Wales magistracy. And, of course, we don't have anything like that going on in Australia today. Mm. No, I think they, they fixed all the problems back then. You know, they just they got they got rid of RAND. They uh, fixed up police corruption in uh, Queensland. And since then, it's been pure as the driven snow. Yes, and the DPP in ACT does not interfere in great <laughs> trials. Oh, yes. No. <laughs> That's right. Okay, I just want to make that very clear to everyone that's listening. Um, there is no police, no DPP, no government interference in any rape trials that are going on concerning employees of ministers. Okay, so then again, I could be wrong. I mean, as we know... Uh, Prime Minister Albanese does listen to the podcast, so uh, he, he can sleep soundly tonight now that we've uh, got that out of the way. That disclaimer has been said. Yeah, I, just, I would expect a, another another message uh, of encouragement from him after this one is is published. As look, as we're used to. I mean, look, it's a, it's a little bit little bit embarrassing what a fanboy. Uh, Anthony Albanese is of Australia Talks podcast, but you know, can't argue with his taste. <laughs> Speaking of taste, uh, do you have a 4X goal bottle top question for us, Ben Along? Okay, so whereabouts, not the, not the town, but where specifically is the dog on the tougher box? The dog. Oh, it's in Gundagai. As in, do you do you mean where the the distance from that uh, from the town? It's five miles from Gundagai. Five miles from Gundagai. I thought it could also be nine miles from Gundagai. Not according to Forex and Queensland isn't ever wrong. <laughs> now I'm uh, oh, just oh, cla oh, cla clarify. There's a little little bit of ambiguity there. Okay. So, so, sorry, can you repeat the question again? Yes, thank you. Am I? That's not a very good question. It's a snake. No, no, hang on, hang on. Don't leave us hanging on that. What's, what's the question verbatim? So what is the name of the gully where the dog on the tuck box is? Oh, okay. Well, that's a good one. Okay, um, okay. Yeah. Um, 
It's five miles from Gundagai. Yeah. And it's also it's also got, I think it's a shell servo and uh, uh, I think it's Oliver's because sometimes when I go up to Sydney, we stop, <laughs> we'll stop there at uh, Gundagai, get out and have a good walk. What yeah. gully? God. What gully? Uh, oh. Starts with a T. Starts with a T. 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 T for Tango. Nah, I'm lying. It starts with an S. Uh, It's probably something really silly like Slap Gully or I don't know. Snake Gully. Snake Gully. Snake Gully. There you go. I've never been there, so I've no idea. It's... It's in New South Wales. It's south of the border, mate. I'm not going down there. <laughs> God, I've been, I've travelled through there so many bloody times. <laughs> God, we used to, we used to, that was one belly. of the, the stop offs when when I was getting when we were getting married back in oh, 1990. We got married, and um, in the some of the wedding preparations, we used to do the trying to sort of save a bit of money. We'd catch the the bus up, and Gundagai was one of the stop offs. Stop offs. As well as the big merino at uh, at Goulburn. Yeah, so shit, that was a long bloody bus ride. Oh, oh I can imagine. Oh, I love God. that big merino. It's got the biggest testicles I've ever seen. I did, yeah, <laughs> it has. <laughs> yeah, uh, bigger than Errol Flynn. So. <laughs> well, and on that bombshell, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thank you so much. Good night. Bye. See you, DK. See you, Ben Long.